You're listening to Infinite Banking Radio with your host, Patrick Donahoe. You know, there's solutions out there to every one of the financial problems that Americans are facing today, and those solutions are right underneath their nose. The Infinite Banking concept has helped hundreds of thousands of individuals manage their hard-earned money effectively using time-tested financial principles that cannot fail. The intent of this podcast is to awaken these time-tested principles and reinstate certainty into the financial makeup of Americans. Our society is saturated in debt. Our portfolios are made up of the same speculative investments and theories that have failed us time and time again. The banking and securities industries have ruled financial planning for decades, and the only true benefactors are them. The infinite banking concept has proven to be the ideal solution. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for downloading this week's podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, you can go back and check out our previous podcasts at uh, infinitebanking.libsyn.com, or you can check out our website, which is www.paradigmlife.net. I have a very special guest today, and he was on our podcast uh, about four months ago. His name's uh, Dr. Robert P. Murphy, and uh, he is the author of, of several books, including his uh, most recent one, How Privatized Banking Works, which came out uh, this past summer. And we're delighted to have him on. For those of you who did not listen to our previous uh, previous interview and previous podcast, uh, go back. It's the uh, the September podcast. So, Bob, it's good to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Pat. That's awesome. Awesome. So, um, I'd like to get, just get down right to it. I mean, obviously, there's lots of things that have happened over the last uh, six months and uh, as as your book has uh, has come out, why don't you uh, let us know what what the uh, what the, the the reaction or the um, you know the response has been? Well, sure, it's been really good. Uh, we we're in a second printing already. We had to go in the second printing within a few months after it first came out there. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's we're getting various reactions. I mean, people who are involved in the insurance industry. Several. One guy actually said to us that you know this is the book we've been waiting for, meaning that you know this is something we can hand to people and explains, you know, insurance and and why we think that this is a, the strategy is right for conventional households. But we've also had you know housewives, to be blunt, you know, come up and saying you know, this. I didn't understand fractional reserve banking before. I always thought that that was something that was too hard for me. But you guys really explain it in a way that I can understand. So we've had that kind of reaction both from you know, industry insiders who recognize that the thing is a very good tool to explain their business to others, but then regular people also just say that this, you know, I didn't understand how our financial system worked. I just used to defer to the experts on TV, but now I really understand it, and you guys have convinced me there's a serious problem. So is you, one of the objectives, obviously, was to kind of awaken people to wh- what some of the problems are with our monetary policy and, and, and banking policies. Um, and obviously, this this book kind of introduces individuals as to as to why there's there's some issues, but gives a, a viable a viable solution. Have you have you seen any resistance to the solution? Because I know that you know during uh, d- during during the meeting you guys had when you launched this book during the summer, uh, there, there was a little bit of resistance. I mean, I was at uh, when uh, when you guys did the the dinner the dinner speaking. A lot of individuals uh, came that didn't necessarily uh, sign up for the conference, but wanted to hear you speak. Wanted to hear uh, uh, Tom Wood speak. And, uh, and, and, you know, I got into some conversation with individuals and they were, they were pretty negative against insurance. Have you, have you seen some, some, some openness in regards to, uh, to, the, to the solution you guys point out in the book? Well, sure. And again, just to bring your listeners up to speed. So what we do in the book is we say that we just go through and explain how the government 
through uh, creating the Federal Reserve System in the United States and other central banks in different countries. Uh, the government has really taken over the monetary system away from its free market roots. It used to be you know, gold and silver, actual commodities were the money, and then the government has now foisted this system on us in which we have green pieces of paper that they can create almost limitlessly, and that's what the foundation of our economy. And so we try to say, well, that's the, where we are now. How can we imagine a different world? And we say well, the ultimate goal would be to get the government out of money and banking altogether, return it to the free market, and let market forces determine those things. But in the meantime, you know, that's a very grandiose goal, and so, and so how do you get to there? Well, in the meantime, there's things that people can do right away, and we say that people who uh, you know, start withdrawing some of their wealth from the stock market and from other areas that the so-called experts tell you to put your money, and if you get uh, you know, a permanent life insurance policies, that that's actually despite the conventional wisdom of a pretty smart place to put your true savings, you know, the money that you want to make sure is there for you and that you can borrow uh, if, if you have an, an, an emergency. So that, that's what we're saying. We're saying and that, in a sense, is privatized banking immediately, that because, you know, you don't have to wait for this, the political consensus to come around. You don't have to storm Washington. You can just sort of secede, if you will, from the current financial system to an extent by, you know, getting out of the Wall Street and the, the conventional banking system and going and, and, in a sense, starting your own bank in, in the way that Nelson Nash describes. So you're right. There, there has been some uh, pushback. There's a lot of people that are big fans of the free market of Austrian economics or you know, libertarianism in the, in the United States, and they like our general message of critiquing the government and its meddling, but they they have a bad taste in their mouth you know, from insurance, and they have, they've have they been taught that, oh, gee, whole life policy is the stupidest place you can put your money. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what we try to do in the book is just to diffuse some of those myths and to show that, well, no, you're looking at various return, you know, the rates of return and things adjusted for the, the different levels of risk. It actually isn't that, you know, isn't a bad investment. And then when you start considering all the other factors, the fact that, you know, if you, if you, if you need to borrow against your cash values, with a life insurance policy, you don't have to tell them what you're going to use the money for. You don't have to show them your income and how you're going to pay it back. Whereas if you go to take out a home equity loan from the bank against your house, you do have to do that sort of thing, right? So it's those sorts of things that aren't included in the normal calculations when they just tell people, oh, yeah, yeah, you want to buy term and invest the difference. That's what the smart people do. So you're right. There, there has been – there is this uh, feeling among a lot of people – but what's funny is one of the main objections I've heard people say, oh, that's only something that rich people do. And it's funny yeah. that you say, okay, so if it's so stupid, then why are rich people doing it? No kidding. No, I remember I was at, at, at that dinner. Um, Trevor, Tre- Trevor and I uh, were, were there, um, who's, who's uh, one of my clients. And he, uh, we were talking to this guy, and he, he was part of the, the, the Tea Party movement. And I guess one of the, one of the, the local politicians that was, that was part of the um, you know, part of the running parties, he was he was there, and and yeah, they were saying the the buy term invest the difference, and you know we brought up, you know the the likes of uh, Donald Trump and and Robert Kiyosaki and very wealthy individuals would would utilize uh, and and use these these policies as part of their overall overall financial plan, and then we brought up the idea of of banks and corporations uh, owning owning 
billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of insurance. And he, he, he didn't believe it was true. And then one of the guys next to him had his iPhone and, and looked everything up. And there were, you know, half a dozen articles about, uh, you know, some of the suits against Walmart because of how much insurance they actually bought. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of ironic because obviously you have with, with free market economics, there's, there's kind of a deviation from the norm. And, you know, if you look at, you know, you, you look at what uh, the societal influence has been as far as what we believe in terms of politics and economics and money, uh, it's very dogmatic. And the break away from that has been free market economics, Austrian economics. And yet, you know, this this financial strategy is also very, uh, it, it's a, a deviation from, from the norm. Uh, but yet there's, you know, some, there's still some resistance. There's still some resistance there, which is, which is pretty, pretty ironic. So... Yeah, and I mean, I understand, too, because there is, you're always going to be find in various movements, you know, people who are there just trying to make a buck, that kind of thing. And so I, I understand why, you know, people who are ideologically interested in this sort of thing, and then they start getting suspicious, like, oh, wait a minute, these guys are just trying to sell me something. So yeah. I mean, there is that natural, and you know, and, that, and that's good. People should be skeptical and so forth, but that's, that's the, you know, in the book, we're just, we're trying to just explain, you know, the general principles of, of of why the this strategy that Nelson Nash has, has discovered really makes makes a lot of sense not only for personal financial reasons but also because the more and more households that do that then you know the less power the federal reserve has so to speak and it it makes it easier for uh you know, for for people to protect their wealth against the arbitrary decisions of Ben Bernanke. Awesome. So, are, so right now your your book is in second printing. Are there any available books still, or or, or is that Okay, so, so are, are you guys planning on doing another event this uh, this summer? We, yes, we are. In fact, it's uh, we, again to bring your listeners up to speed. So it's our our night of clarity, sort of the flagship event that Carlos Lar and I put on in Nashville uh, last year. We had a, a nice turnout, and people were really uh, enthusiastic about it. So the, yeah, this year it's the the dates are it's July twenty second and twenty third. Or what is when they're going to be? So that's a Friday and a Saturday this coming July, twenty second and twenty third. Uh, we don't we don't have the you know the website up with all the details yet, but just to to give you a hint, we are uh, the theme is going to be Andrew Jackson and his slang of the of the uh, Second Bank of the United States. And so, you know, as some of your listeners may know, President Andrew Jackson, he. Uh, he was very much opposed to a central bank in the United States, and he had a lot of impassioned speeches about, you know, the, these foreign bankers sort of influencing U.S. politics because of their influence in the in the banking system. And he wanted just to get rid of that, and he thought, it would, you know, that was like a giving a fair shake to the common man, that sort of thing. And uh, it's really a fascinating story of how he, he managed to do it. He pulled it off, and so we want to just look at that. And by the way, Andrew Jackson also literally paid off the national debt. So it's not merely that he balanced the budget or something a few years, he actually completely retired the uh, the debt owed by the federal government. So we want to, in terms of monetary and fiscal policy, we want to hold him up as an example and just show that this is politically possible. In other words, it's not a pipe dream when we try to imagine a world without the Federal Reserve that in the United States, you know, the, you, the, the predecessor of the Fed, the second bank of the United States, was shut down by a charismatic president who had the, the you know, popular support. So that's that's the theme of our conference, and we're going to have on the Saturday uh, a, a tent party out at the, the mansion of Andrew Jackson because he lived in uh, Nashville, yeah. Right, yeah, right outside of Nashville there. So, so there's a historical site of where his mansion is. And so after the conference on Friday, you know, on Saturday, we'll have a, a tent party out there for everyone who wants to come out. Interesting. So any anybody's invited to, to, to this weekend, correct? 
Well, yeah, sure. I mean, like I say, we'll at some point we'll have the details up at the at usatrustonline.com, but we don't have it up right now because we're still hammering out the, the so, specifics. But yeah, it's going to be similar to last year's uh, roster. We're going to, you know, Tom Woods. I'm going to be there. Nelson Nash, Carlos, uh, and we're trying to get, line up some other speakers as well to just give general talks on the economy or on. Uh, you know, the issues of liberty and history in the United States, that sort of thing. And then the Saturday seminar will be more of an instructional for, for financial professionals, like how do you apply these principles to your to your business? And then, yeah, Saturday's the, the tent party. Got it. That sounds, uh, that sounds awesome. Is there any, uh, any books that you would recommend as a preface to understanding more of uh, Andrew Jackson's philosophy? Well, as far as what we're going to do there, I mean, I, I would just obviously point people to our to our book on how privatized banking really works, where we, I, I do the, the parts there where we talk about ending the Federal Reserve, we have a little section devoted to, you know, is this possible, meaning is it politically possible? And there I do quote some various sources and explain the fight that Andrew Jackson had with the, the head of the central bank at that time. Um, and and, and the, what happened there. I mean, it's an interesting story because the, the head of the central bank obviously didn't want his little baby to be shut down, and so he literally threw the country into a depression. Uh, wow. You know, it's sort of like you know holding the country hostage to Andrew Jackson. I mean, and, and this isn't just speculation. I mean, he had you know they have memos. He, he was writing to people like this is clear that that's what he was doing, thinking he was going to get Jackson to back off. So. Mm. So yeah, the, the story of that is in is in our book, How Privatized Banking Really Works, if people want to go read up on that. Interesting. Now, as as far as, uh, you know, as far as Austrian economics and as far as free market economics, obviously there's been a lot that's happened over the last uh, uh, last couple of months, and uh, mainly mainly with the Tea Party. So what, what's uh, what's your reaction to uh, to the elections and uh, what what happened and what what type of uh, impact do you think that's going to make on the overall cause of you know Ron Paul and some of the other individuals that were that were voted in with this similar philosophy? Well, I have mixed reactions to the Tea Party success. So on the one hand, obviously it's great that what appeared to be the winning rhetoric this election cycle was people who were saying, you know, take power away from Washington and, and, you know, Washington's, the government's too big and we need to cut spending and cut taxes and free up entrepreneurs. So it was good that, that that's what people needed to say to, to get elected. My concern, though, well, there's two things. One is, as always, you know, I'm very suspicious when politicians say they're going to do something. Now, I know a lot of these people are first timers that they actually were not career politicians. A lot of them were business people and so forth mm-hmm. running for office. So maybe they'll they'll do a better job to to actually fulfill their promises, but I mean I re, I remember back in the '90s when the Republicans took over Congress, and you know everybody was just elated. They thought, okay, finally now we're gonna you know the contract with America and so forth, and they were all excited. And it it wasn't very long before you know a lot of those those things fell by the wayside. So um, I'll see what happens. The other main problem I have with the Tea Party is. Um, I, I went and gave a talk to the, to the the Tea Party convention in Cincinnati last April fifteenth, April fifteenth, twenty ten, and uh, and, it, and when I was there, I was there. So it's, it was in Fifth Third Arena. So there was thousands of people going in. And before the show started, they up on the the scoreboard there, they were like showing a, a slideshow, like a PowerPoint slideshow of different pictures, uh-huh. photos. And when they, you know, they would show Barack Obama and the crowd would boo. Okay, they would show Nancy Pelosi and the crowd would really boo. And then they showed uh, 
Ron Paul, and there wasn't much of a reaction. I think it was just because the people in the photo didn't recognize who he was. He was kind of looking back. <laughs> that's a, that's okay, interesting. Okay, but that's you know, fair enough. Sure. But then they showed a photo of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney waving, and the crowd went nuts with applause. Wow. And, it's, and it really, I mean, not you even put aside issue of foreign policy, whether you agree with that or not, but, you know, the Tea Party, the one thing that they're supposed to be against is big government spending yep. and bailouts. And those both happened under the Bush administration. Absolutely. You know, the TARP bailout happened was not Obama's policy; yeah. it was Bush's. So yep. it's you know, it, so that that kind of thing makes me not so sure that you know, if to only put it to you this way, if if John McCain had won in two thousand eight, I don't know that the Tea Party would have been so energetic as they were against Barack Obama, even though I think a McCain presidency would have been very similar to an Obama one. So it is a, it is a bandwagon of, of sorts. And so now it's, okay, put your put your money where your mouth is. Right. And, I, and again, I don't mean to impugn everybody. I think the Tea Party is attracting lots of people. And so there are some that are really non-ideological. You know, it's not that they care about Republicans or Democrats. They really just realize, holy cow, this government's out of control. And so I'm trying to, you know, I try to, that's probably why I participated in that event is because I knew there were people like that that I wanted to reach with the with my message. But again, I think you're right that I think some Republican strategists realize, well, we got to get, you know, on this wave and let's ride this thing on this anti-Obama message and use the Tea Party as a way to get elected. Got it. Got it. Well, some other some other things that have happened, obviously, is you had you had QE2 and, and obviously we could probably dedicate a whole podcast to that. Um, but looking at potentially, you know, some some inclination that we'll have a little bit more transparency with the Fed was, you know, some some action there where they had to be, you know, transparent to an extent as far as some of their activity during the uh, during the, the 2008 2009 crisis. So, what do you, what do you think that's a, a step in the in the right direction? We, uh, about the transparency? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's that's probably one of the few good things that came out of the uh, Financial regulation reforms, as they call them, that with this you know increased disclosure, that actually the Federal Reserve had to do that stuff as well. So yeah, on December first, they had this big dump of all the uh, December first, two thousand ten. They had this big dump of all uh, the transactions the Fed had been doing since the crisis began. And you're right, we learned a bunch of things, stuff that we suspected, but that we didn't know the actual details. Like mm-hmm. for example, Goldman Sachs, in order to get away from the uh, the, the the limits imposed on bonuses they could or compensation they could pay to their to their executives they paid back their TARP loan mm-hmm. and you know and, and so people at the time were saying oh wow look at this that was a good investment the government made in, in the Goldman Sachs and they paid it off because they're you know the economy is improving blah 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 and it turned out that no the Goldman got the money to pay back the TARP loan from the Fed I think like the day before or you know within the week before it might have literally have been the day before yeah that the Federal Reserve behind closed doors, you know, back door, gives Goldman Sachs billions of dollars, and then they pay off the federal government. And then, you know, now, now, now Goldman can do whatever it wants because it paid off its loan with money the Fed gave it. So, you know, th- there's lots of funny things like that going on. But to answer your question, yeah, of course, the more disclosure we have about what the Fed is doing, the, the better it is. It, it sort of limits what they can do. I mean, when you think about what Ben Bernanke's official position was, he was literally giving out hundreds of billions of dollars when the crisis really set in in the last part of 2008 there. Congress calls him before them and said, you know, Chairman Bernanke, we're not second-guessing your decisions as to what you think the economy needs, but can you at least tell us which firms are getting how much money from you behind closed doors? 
And he said, well, no, I can't tell you that because that would defeat the purpose of the program. If investors knew that a particular bank needed $10 billion from us, then, you know, they'd short their stock run. and so forth. So, so I mean, I mean, now, if you just were watching the news or something, that sounds like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And you go and flip it and go watch baseball or something. But <laughs> if you just think about that, that's astounding. That this Here's this guy that Ben Bernanke that can create hundreds of billions of dollars just, you know, pressing nothing. a button and then give it to various people and not even have to tell Congress who he's giving it to. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, I think that, again, as you said, it's a step step in the right direction. And hopefully hopefully that leads to more more transparency, more more accountability. And then, you know, obviously individuals can see the writing on the wall and recognize how, how destructive that type of um, you know, cent- central banking system is to is to an economy. So, yeah, right. And, and the thing, this is really, I think, a, a good example of the difference between Austrian economics and some other schools of thought. Because a lot of times people say, you know, what, what's the big deal? Why do you why do you stress that you're an Austrian economist? Why don't you just say you're a free market kind of guy? You know, what's the difference between you guys and like, Chicago school economists? And and this is one area where that that difference really is, is illuminated is that. Austrians had this. Uh, they focus a lot on on, ca- on the capital structure of the economy. So, like the the various physical machines and and the various stages of production. So that you know, it's not just oh, you've got labor and capital and they just mix together and boom, you get your output. The way it would be in the models of other schools of thought. The Austrians focus a lot more on the fact that well, no, I mean you've got various stages of production, like a a given television set, for example. If you follow its life cycle back to its individual components, I mean, it it takes a while to build a television set. You know, if you followed it back and looked at all the pieces and where they come from, there'd be resources from all over the world ultimately being harvested or mined or what have you to ultimately go into the production of just a television set. Just the eye pencil concept. Yeah, and so uh, you know, when you when you start realizing that, that's when you understand that the problem with the, what the Fed is doing with QE two and all this stuff. It's not simply that, uh-oh, there might be price inflation two years from now, which is what a lot of the sort of monetarist critics point out. So the people who are opposed to what the Fed is doing, who aren't Austrians, usually their big complaint is just that, oh, well, this is going to cause inflation, by which they mean you know, rising prices. But the Austrians realize, well, no, there's a lot more than just that. It, it doesn't, you know, the fact that interest rates have been 0% for the last year and a half, or short-term interest rates, I mean, that screws things up. Interest yeah. rates are prices that direct production and direct entrepreneurs, and if you set the wrong interest rate, that's going to screw things up. So that's really a good example. Or if Ben Bernanke behind the scenes is bailing out people who are his buddies, I mean, that, that messes up the market process. That means firms that were supposed to fail, fail now yeah. aren't failing, and resources are getting locked into air channels where they shouldn't be. So that's sort of understanding just the true harm of what the Fed's been doing. I think it takes Austrian economics to really explain that. So do you do you think, and obviously it's artificial at, at best, but do you think that a lot of their activity is what what has led to a, a, a relatively um, relatively strong 2010? Oh, oh, definitely. It's um, I th- I think that by some measures, you know, right now people are thinking, oh, we're coming we're coming out of this recession. And if you look, for example, at the at the stock market, it was tanking until about March 2009, and then it starts zooming back up. And that was right when the first round of quantitative easing was announced. And then also, uh, it's, it, the connection wasn't as clear but this time around, but basically in the summer, I think it was around July and then August for sure, is when 
people on Wall Street really started expecting that in the November meeting of 2010 that the Fed was going to announce a second round of quantitative easing. And then you, you saw again the stock markets start soaring uh, from, from the summer once that expectation set in. So it's, I mean, it, it's a very crude thing, but yeah, when the, when the Federal Reserve prints up a bunch of money and hands it out primarily to people, players in the financial sector, you're going to see, on paper at least, it looking like the economy's improving in terms of uh, the stock market and things like that. And then even other conventional indicators can go up in the short term, because it my my opinion is right now we're experiencing this is the boom period for this particular part of our cycle. The, now the reason it doesn't feel like it's prosperity is just because we were starting at such an awful low spot. Low. Yeah, and so just the same way that Alan Greenspan after the dot com crash, he brought interest rates way down and fueled the housing bubble. And people at the time were calling him the maestro and were saying, "Oh, this is great <laughs> that you know that he." He pulled the economy out of the doldrums from what should have been an awful recession after the dot-com crash. And then, of course, once housing crashed, we realized, oh, wait a minute, maybe Greenspan wasn't really doing us any favors. So I think it's the same thing here, that the economy after the housing crash should have had a major recession. It probably would have been an awful year or so. And then we would have been on the road to a solid recovery. But instead of that, we're, kick, we're, we're kick, keep- kicking the can and deferring the, right. deferring the inevitable. Right. Right, Gramanke brings interest rates down to even lower than Greenspan did, and pumps in a bunch more money than Greenspan did. So, so yeah, I I don't think that the economy is finally turning the corner, and I I do think that even though this is lackluster as this recovery is, and I'm putting recovery in quotation marks, I think yeah, this is largely driven just by the Fed creating over a trillion dollars and dumping it in the economy. Because I think that you know now what what's become uh, a, a leading indicator as far as consumer sentiment is. The, the balance of their retirement account. And that's all subject to, you know, what's going on in, in, in the market. And so the artificial, you know, injection of money and the subsequent increases in, in the markets is what's getting people to, you know, be more comfortable with, with what's going on. So do you, do you see a, you know, maybe a, a similar, similar type of increase in, in 2011? Or do you think this is going to be a short-lived, short-lived bubble with a, a subsequent uh, bust? Well, it's, of course, always risky to, to put a time frame on sure, because then know, you could possibly be proven wrong, right? So uh, so I should acknowledge that I I have been worried about rising consumer prices ever since Bernanke started this, what I consider to be mad policy. And so far, that those fears, you know, you see it in gas prices and, and food prices, uh, but, you know, obviously it's not like, like milk is $10 a gallon or anything right now. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't want to come off as, as chicken little here, but I, but I do think that you're right, that it's the reason people are starting to relax is because, you know, they were terrified when their 401ks dropped 40%, and, you know, when the crisis first set in, and then now that the stock market has, has regained a lot of that territory, and, uh, you know, I, I think people clammed up, they built up their cash reserves, a lot of businesses did, but at some point, they figure, okay, well, how much cash are we going to accumulate, and then they're going to start lending again. So, uh I, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but I think what's, what eventually will happen is that, let's say within the next three years, I, I believe this would would occur, is you're eventually the fact that they've printed all this money, you're going to see long-term interest rates start rising, right, because of inflation expectations, and then that's really going to be when the rubber hits the road because there's all this money sitting in the banks and not trickling out into the economy because right now 
what you know what's the incentive for a bank to lend the money because you know the businesses are still risky their balance sheets are still shot and their and the interest rates are so low they might as well just keep the money parked at the fed which is what they've largely been doing but once people start thinking oh no okay we're back into a regular economy now they're going to start lending that out and then bernanke's going to have to either let it happen and let the money supply really flow into the economy and push up prices or he's going to have to suck it out and crash the economy again. And it's, it's interesting that you you uh, you make. And I know you you know obviously you're not gonna you know you're you're not you're not a profit as far as as far as what what markets are going to do. But that that three year, four year, five year window, uh, there, there's kind of some fuel to to the fire with you know the, a, a very large, relatively speaking, population that's going to be subject to required minimum distributions of their. Uh, of their qualified plan, and so you know, with with baby boomers, with you know, three to four times the population size as the succeeding generations, um, you know, the, all the money that they were putting in during the late '70s, early '80s, and in the '90s is now going to start coming back. So obviously, you have you know, interest rates, long-term interest rates going up, but also you have uh, money starting to trickle out of the out of the market. Do you think that's going to also have a, a pretty negative impact on things? Yeah, I, I do think that's certainly. I mean, I, I would need to go check the demographics again to see the exact timeline of that. But but you're right. The, the fact that you know a lot of a lot of the money that's in Wall Street right now is because of people's 401ks and other qualified uh, retirement plans. And yeah, as you, as you mentioned, just legally to avoid penalties, people have to start taking distributions of that stuff. And just with the way the demographics work, if more people in a sense, are retiring, then new workers are funding their retirement, then there's going to be a net sale of assets there, and that's going to push down stock prices. So, yeah, I definitely think there's going to be that, and then also in conjunction with the trends I'm talking about. So, in other words, let me put it this way, I I don't think that the stock market was correctly valued, let's say, at the end of 2007, and then the fall in 2008 was some aberration, and now things are going back to normal. No, I think that there was a huge bubble in the stock market and that it was pushed up to ridiculous heights by 2007. And so when it crashed, it was just coming down to where it should it have should been. been. Yeah. Right. And so now all that's happened is the Bernanke by printing up a trillion new dollars has just pumped it back up again. So to me, it's not an issue of, you know, what could happen to make it come down. It's more how long can Bernanke keep that thing up in the air when it, it shouldn't be that high. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, wanted to just shift gears, kind of as we as we conclude. Um, I I know that you you made a pretty uh, pretty bold statement um, at the end of uh, end of last year, and you know pretty much initiated a, a potential debate with probably one of the one of the more f- uh, famous uh, economists, just because of you know where, who who he writes for his columns and and uh, and winning the the Nobel Prize in, in economics but what what maybe what gave you the uh, the idea or, or what was your objective behind um, I guess calling Paul Krugman to the to the carpet well sure so yeah for your listeners who don't know Paul Krugman is as you mentioned a uh, you know a, a, an Ivy League uh, economist and he won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on trade theory but beyond that he's also in the public eye he's a was a famous critic of the Bush administration from his perch uh, at the New York Times, that he had a re- regular column, and then he also has a, has a blog at the New York Times website. And so, yeah, Krugman is, a, is an, an arch Keynesian, meaning he thinks that free markets left to themselves are prone to disaster, and that it takes wise government oversight. And in times of recession, you need the government to spend a bunch of money to run big deficits, and that's the solution to getting out of recession in Krugman's mind. 
So he's he's an arch foe of Austrian economics, both for his own positions and also he has explicitly criticized the Austrians over the years. So a lot of Austrians have been challenging him to a debate. You know, they always say, hey, Krugman, if you're such a smart guy, why don't you debate one of us and we'll see whether Keynesian or Austrian theory uh, makes more, more sense. And he has just dismissed them. You know, and there was a case where he was at a book signing for one of his books, and someone in the crowd asked him, you know, Dr. Krugman, why don't you debate the Austrians? And he said something to the effect that, well, I know you're going to think that this is just me being a coward, but, you know, they're not worth my time. No serious <laughs> economist listens to the Austrians, right? So in his mind, what, why, what would make it worth my while? So what I did with my debate challenge, and people can go to KrugmanDebate.com to, to see this, is I said, okay, well, how can I sort of put the pressure on him? And so I came up with this campaign where I get pledges from people, and they're not, the money's not going to go to me or to Krugman. The money, if, if Krugman agrees to debate me on Austrian business cycle theory, the money that is, pl- is pledged goes to a food bank in New York City, because Krugman lives in New York. On his stomping and so ground, the, yeah. And so, yeah, so the idea is, if, we, if I get the total up really high, let's say get it to $100,000, then it's going to be awkward for Paul Krugman to say, I don't want to debate for an hour with this punk on economics, even though that would mean $100,000 is going to get donated to this food bank in New York. When I, you know, when the title of my blog is Conscious of a Liberal, and I always talk about how much I care about the poor and the needy. <laughs> so, 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 that was, so that's the idea. So, people can, so I set up a, a way that people can make pledges. And the beauty of it is you, you don't have to make your, you know, your credit card doesn't get billed until Krugman debates me. So there's no lost to the people pledging the money unless the thing actually happens unless he accepts right okay well hopefully hopefully he does that would be uh that would be that would be quite quite the event um do you do you know if he's aware that uh of what you're doing right now well yeah i think he is i mean right now the the our total is i think like fifty eight thousand dollars something like that the last i checked um yeah, I, I mean, he's definitely aware of it that some people on his blog and the comments, you know, will make reference to the debate and give a link to KrugmanDebate.com to try to get people to go there. But also, um, someone for CNBC did a did a story on it when I first launched the debate, and then emailed Krugman and you know to ask him what what's your do you have any comment on this and he didn't answer their email. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so so we can go to we can go to KrugmanDebate.com. We'll put a link on on our blog and on the podcast, but they can go there and they can they can uh, get a link to the to the pledge site. Yep. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bob, we're we're at about uh, thirty five minutes. I, I appreciate your uh, I appreciate your time. It's it's always great having having you on. I hope you come back and uh, and speak with us again. Well, thank. All right. Well, this is uh, this is Patrick Donahoe signing off. Thank you for listening today. To uh, to get the past uh, past podcast where uh, Dr. Murphy was on, you can go to www.paradigmlife.net or you can go directly to the uh, the podcast site, which is infinitebanking.libsyn.com. That's all for today. Thanks.